Don't let a DUI charge ruin your life. Get a professional and confidential evaluation from our experienced team at True Heights Treatment. Our evaluations are accepted by the majority of courts in the state of Illinois and provide a comprehensive assessment of your substance use patterns and potential treatment needs. Get the help you need today and start your path to a brighter future. Contact us now to schedule your evaluation at 708-248-7039 or at thtdui.com. The George Brassy Podcast is made possible with funding provided from Brassy Global Strategies, LLC, a leading political consulting, public policy, government affairs, and research firm. Are you interested in running for elected office? Need advice? Call or email George, 708-769-5015. Brassy Global Strategies 1 at gmail.com. I'm so glad to welcome our next guest, Dr. Matthew Gloviak. Matthew holds a PhD and a master's degree from Walden University. Matt, Dr. Matthew, welcome to the podcast. Oh, George. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure to be able to have the opportunity to speak with you on your podcast, especially considering all the common interests we have and in trying to fulfill our mission of really just making this world a better place. And I thank you so much for everything you're doing, as well as having me here today. Yeah, definitely, Matt. It's a, it's a pleasure to have you. Tell us a little bit about your personal journey in becoming a therapist. What is the origins of uh, your interest in mental health? Oh, goodness. So I can go many different directions with this one, but I guess I'll, I'll take this one for the purpose of this podcast. So it definitely wasn't anything that was linear. It was rather uh, dynamic and came with a lot of twists and turns and everything. You know, as a young man, I was always somebody who was actively involved in school, many different organizations, as an individual who had friends of all types. And when I say all types, I mean a variety of different demographics as I uh, live in Bolingbrook, Illinois, or I was born and raised and actually live right now. And so a very diverse community, um, individuals who are in all sorts of different activities, uh, those who had different personality styles and so on. And it was one of those things as I was a kid is that people would always tell me, you know, you're a really great listener. I feel comfortable speaking to you about things. And it seems like, you know, you're really helpful. And I really appreciate that. And you know, that was something that always stood out to me. And I realized at a relatively younger age, particularly in high school, that I wanted to do something involved in the helping professions. So ended up enrolling to the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign, go Illini, in pre-med and bioengineering. My original plan was to become a pediatrician really wanted to be a doctor, specifically MD in this case, working all with children. And I found out relatively early on in my experience at U of I that, you know, the pre-med piece wasn't necessarily going the best for me. I wasn't very great at chemistry. I will tell you that I completely bombed that course. Ended up losing myself a little bit. And, you know, as I was trying to discover what it was I was interested in, I was speaking to friends and a lot of friends in psychology said, hey, you seem like you'd be a really great you know, psychologist. Maybe you should check this out. And I wasn't sure. And I spoke with a career academic counselor at the University of Illinois. And, you know, as we went through, he also was stating that it seems as though psychology, perhaps teaching would be something that would be appropriate. 
but he encouraged me to take this educational psychology class that really helped you dig in deep to yourself. We wrote a lot of reflection papers, a lot of, uh, you know, introspection assignments and that. And I'll never forget, we had to take the Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory 2, better known as the MMPI 2, which is a comprehensive uh, personality assessment. And upon completing this, it read back my personality better than I could have possibly done myself. Literally, the hairs on my arms stood on end. I literally got the chills. I read this report. And at the end, it said, you would be better as a psychologist or a teacher. And from that point moving forward, I got it in my head that I wanted to be a psychologist and a teacher. And that's the way I proceeded. And, you know, the rest of the time I was at University of Illinois. Uh, of course, work went well in psychology. Uh, from there, I did start working in a logistics field because uh, I had to pay the bills and my education and all that. But a couple of years after graduation, I re-enrolled in graduate school, uh, completed my master's degree in mental health counseling at that point, started working in the field in a methadone clinic, primarily uh, opioid use disorder, individuals who were using heroin intravenously, uh, while working on my PhD, uh, putting together private practice with another partner, and just doing a bunch of other advocacy work in the field, working toward my CAADC. So very busy time, but it was definitely one of those things where once I found out what it was I wanted to do and I started to embark on this journey, just everything came together. And I feel so fortunate to feel as though I am truly living my life's calling right now, though I still have much more to learn and will continue doing that in stride. Uh, Dr. Matt, you mentioned that you had a private practice. Uh, some of the listeners out there have their own private practice. Do you have any thoughts about the business end of things in the year 2021? I will say the business end of things can always be quite um, when it comes to certain aspects of this. It's definitely not something that you're taught while you're in a traditional master's program or even a doctoral program, if you will. I remember being a master's student and we had one book on private practice. It was called The Paper Practice. I think our instructor had us read three or four pages in it and we didn't look at it again. I mean, clinically, a lot of the stuff that you need to know, you will know going into that, that's informed. But really some of the specifics in terms of the insurance, like what can you bill, what can you not bill, uh, in terms of the software that you use, the way you set up your website, the way that you advertise, the way you hire, and just the way that you structure your team. A lot of that does require some additional knowledge and some experience. You know, one thing I would definitely encourage those who are currently students to do if you do want to open a private practice eventually after you're fully licensed, I would strongly recommend, you know, taking some courses in business. And if not, you know, at least reading some books, uh, reviewing other podcasts, YouTube videos, if you will. Uh, consulting with other people who've had private practices. That was something that really helped me out a lot. But to be completely honest with you, a lot of it really is the experience. You know, as counselors, I tell my students and you know, my clients as well, you know, being adaptable, flexible to change, being resilient is ever so important in life. And the same thing really does apply to having your own private practice. With that being said, when you do make a mistake, ensure that you learn from it, take corrective action and move forward. It was specific to 2021. We've seen a lot of different changes with the pandemic right now, you know, having a switch over to telemental health counseling. You know, I started graduate school with Walden Online in 2007, and at that point, they were talking about, well, there might be a future with telemental health, uh, you know, in terms of HIPAA compliance, other ethical standards, and so on. You know, there were a lot of reservations. 
And we're slowly but surely building up to a point, even before the pandemic, where this was becoming a bit more mainstream. Clinicians were being trained in telemental health. There are more platforms supporting it and so on. However, the big change that really happened with the pandemic is that it just really forced telemental health upon us because you know, we have different lockdown restrictions and the quarantine and so on. A lot of offices had to shut down. And while this is happening, mental health implications are on the rise. We see increased rates of suicidal homicidal ideation. We're seeing increased domestic abuse, increased substance use, and so on, even for people who may not have had a formal diagnosis prior to the pandemic. So we've had a lot of adjustments here. And I think that this is a big learning point to all of us that as these things do happen, we may not always be prepared, but it's important to react accordingly. And my thought from all the literature I'm reading and the trends I'm observing now is I would say telemental health is here to say. So something that is worthwhile training on and adjusting your system accordingly. The the idea that it would be able to be taken away at this point to me seems a bit... Um unrealistic and a bit petty if that was to happen by the insurance companies. I feel like it's been something that's been really helpful um, in expanding access. Uh, You're not really limited just to the people who can come and see you at the office, which is a, a nice, nice addition for the practice. Well, and that's substantial, too. And we have to keep in mind, especially with a lot of the different populations we're trying to serve. And, you know, I know we talk a lot about this time right now. We've got the COVID-19 crisis pandemic, but we also have a pandemic in terms of civil unrest and everything that's really going on right now. And we talk about accessibility of We have individuals and more affluent groups seem to have what they need and they continue to receive more, while the individuals who don't have what they need continue to receive less and less and less. And I see telemental health being an avenue to be able to equalize that a little bit, afford more equitability, if you will. You know, insofar as now individuals who may not have access to transportation are now able to see you you know, for regular sessions, there are many platforms in which services are actually cheaper than they are in the traditional uh, type of counseling setting. We have individuals who may struggle with various types of uh, mobile disabilities and so on, or, you know, whatever other type of disability, and they're not able to see you in the office without having somebody else present and so on. So it really does provide a lot more opportunities to individuals than we wouldn't have had before. And I mean, if you ask me honestly, okay, what's better, face-to-face or telemental health services? I'll always say that face-to-face is best. I, that way I can feel the energy in the room. I can see different uh, nonverbal communications you're doing. I might not see on a computer screen. Usually we're waist up, but I can't see you tapping your feet or, you know, jittering your hands, shaky hands, things like that, you know, that would really help me out. But some services are better than no services. And to completely say that it's a black or white, all or nothing type of thing I think is completely inappropriate you know so this does offer access to way more people and if we take a look at it even further you know a lot of the clinical programs now are being offered online we can do those remotely here Um, a lot of the schools are traditionally face-to-face brick and mortar are now offering clinical instruction online so a lot of the students now are being more so trained in telemental health than they even are in face-to-face. And it'll be interesting to see, perhaps we could do a research study on this later, you know, but what are the implications of that? Now, what's that going to look like for moving forward? You know, I do anticipate that things will smooth over and become a lot better as we move forward, but it's going to look a little different for sure. One final thought on telemental health. I wanted you to express any thoughts or opinions you have about 
companies like Talkspace or BetterHelp? You know, so again, like I said a few moments ago, I am of the belief that some therapy is better than no therapy uh, whatsoever. Now, when I say that, this is of the understanding that the therapy one is receiving is, you know, number one, you know, it's ethical, uh, it's legal, you know, it's something that's well-intended, and it's something that's clinically informed with the evidence-based practices that we have, you know, utilizing the appropriate theories, approaches, methods, and so on. So as long as we have some coherence there, I definitely think it's appropriate. Now, it does depend on the style of what you're looking for, because some of these websites, and you know, I can't say specific one to another, but you, you have to take a look at what you're signing up for. Uh, some of these organizations offer telemental health. It's just like a traditional type of session, but you're doing it remotely on your computer or mobile device, if you will. Please don't do it while driving or in a dangerous area. You know, while other ones offer more of, you know, like tech support type uh, services and that. So, you know, if I'm having a difficult time right now. I can send a text message over. I'll receive perhaps a general response with some different types of recommendations in terms of de-escalation strategies, maybe some deep breathing to calm me down in the moment and a homework assignment that I can engage in, you know, that evening or throughout the rest of the week to be able to find some peace and resolve uh, there in the moment. Uh, these services are typically a lot cheaper. I know uh, some of the websites will offer monthly fat fee, uh, flat fee. We'll even have uh, free trials and so on that you could do. So definitely a great start for people, but it's going to depend really on what you need and how you do utilize it. You know, if you're somebody who actively utilizes these programs and you find that they're helping, then great. That's what you need. For some of the more invasive, severe, chronic types of mental health disorders, I do think that some additional layers are going to be necessary. And you also have to keep in mind with something like a talk space and so on, you know, we're not receiving all the psychiatric services that might be necessary. Now, as a mental health counselor, I don't uh, prescribe medications, nor do I go off the cuff to recommend them because I'm not a medical doctor. However, as we do see in practice, there are conditions that warrant this, and that's when we collaborate with the psychiatrist. You know, so I do fear sometimes that that type of stuff might be lost in translation. However, I do think that there's a lot of efficacy to these. I do recommend them to people who uh, find that they work. You know, I do find them to be affordable and I think that they're helping a lot of people out there. But same thing too, you can go ahead and see some different free support groups offered online, you know, through various organizations such as uh, National Alliance on Mental Illness, uh, Smart Recovery, you know, AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, and so on are offering different groups. And so the important thing to know for everybody is that the support is out there. If you have any fear that it's going to cost too much or resources are challenging, you know, there are some ways to be able to work around that. Unfortunately, the technology has gotten such that it is more accessible to become more affordable. And, you know, there are different ways to be able to work through things. But again, there are still going to be situations where even that having the bare essentials is still challenging to certain clients and populations. And that's something that our field and society in general need to continue to work toward to make more equitable. Dr. Matt, you mentioned uh, in addition to the coronavirus, we've also had quite a bit of civil unrest in the year of 2020 and definitely leading into 2021. Uh, as we record this, we've just got done with the riots at the Capitol were about two weeks ago, and we're about 48 hours until President Biden is inaugurated. Uh, what role does this whole year take on an individual's mental health? 
takes a substantial substantial toll on one's mental health. And I'll even say as a clinical professional uh, professor and so on, that it's taken a substantial toll on my well-being here as well, as I do have a lot of concern and I'm quite disheartened by everything that has happened out here. And, and we do need to consider that across the board, you know, different individuals have different sensitivities to things. You know, we talk about, you know, fancy term for your predisposition to stress, the stress diaphysis model, which really depends upon multiple different types of things. You know, one, what's your genetic predisposition? You know, two, you know, how were you raised? Like, so as you were raised, what type of coping skills or lack thereof were you um, familiar with and add into your toolkit, so to speak? Have you started to engage in any unhealthy habits and so on, that type of stuff? And then we have to take a look at the environment here as well. You know, so we have things that can directly impact us. So, you know, maybe uh, personally you've been impacted by an individual who's made a microaggression or you felt oppressed in some type of specific way. But we can also be impacted indirectly as well which we refer to as vicarious trauma. So vicarious trauma might be for many of us who were watching like I was, you know, everything that happened in the Capitol building that day and feeling upset by it. I did not personally know anybody in the building at that time. Um, you know, I was not personally there, but it impacted me on a level in which I felt very sad for our society and very scared. And I know a lot of people are experiencing that type of thing. And that's something important that we really do need to consider here. You know, when we have events like this that happen, you know, it spreads a lot of fear. And when people are fearful, they become anxious, they begin acting out, uh, they become more withdrawn, they start to doubt themselves, they start to doubt what's out there. And it can be quite confusing what we've had out in society, especially when we talk about the dual pandemics. You know, one week we're saying one thing about COVID-19, appropriate protocol, and then the next week we're saying something else. You know, the vaccinations, we're all excited that there would be a smooth system of rolling them out for everybody to be vaccinated. Now we're seeing there's some problems and we're also seeing a mutated virus, which is a common occurrence for all viruses. You know, so we have a lot of challenges going on and the information when it's confusing like it is. And I know some of this is honest mistakes. We learn things as we learn them. But there's also been some misrepresentation of information, which is very problematic. In terms of the civil unrest piece, what we need to consider is this isn't something that just suddenly happened. It didn't all start with George Floyd. This was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak. What we need to understand is as a society, since the very beginning of American history, and the rest of the world society as well, there's a lot of evidence going into this, you know, really built upon a type of system where we have different socioeconomic statuses. We have those considered the elite, and then it trickles down from there. So we have our individuals who have everything, and then we have the individuals who unfortunately do not. And what's hard to see, I think, for a lot of individuals, especially as I'm watching what's going on in TV and so on, is that it's very easy to get lost in your own everyday world. And I thought it was put so well um, recently by another professional who's explaining, especially from the dominant category, it's like I know a lot of individuals, myself being white, you know, um, you know, in speaking conversation, whether it's in class, professionally, personally, and so on, you know, just how did all this stuff come out of nowhere? And one of the things that's really important to realize, especially as a white individual or somebody from dominant demographic, 
is that when you're not the one who's facing the oppression, you have the luxury of not having to really deal with it. You know, for many white folks and even myself included, as I was raised, if you asked me to define my culture, it's, oh, I'm a white American. I really didn't think about it any further, you know, and I didn't see the things that were happening. And you know, some of it has to do with my community being diverse and there wasn't much racial tension I saw as a child, you know, but being able to turn the blinders onto it because it's not personally impacting you. And I think that's why it's come across as a very large surprise to people. But these are things that have been problematic you know, for a very long time. And you can even draw the line back to what I was saying about telemental health services and making it more equitable. You know, as we see for individuals from oppressed populations, it's been an uphill battle from the beginning. You know, you're born in poverty and you're having to struggle to get by. You know, you're worried about paying the bills, worried about having heat, having food on the table. Then you're having to worry about going to school and not being attacked by gang members, um, you know, in order to not be attacked by them. Dr. Matt, I'll complicate. Yes. You had dropped off uh, for a second. You were saying you're talking about people joining um, gangs in high school. Correct. So, you know, outside looking in when you're an individual who doesn't live this type of life or live in this type of environment, you take a look at gang activity and say, well, any child that did this is morally deficit. What's wrong with the parent? But that couldn't be further from the truth, because we have to keep in mind when people are in these types of situations of oppression, it's literally a survival type of mode. How do I get by on the daily basis? It's either join the gang or be attacked or killed by the gang. You know, and so it's not so simple of, you know, joining it because you're morally deficit, but doing it as a means of survival. And we also have to take a look at the factor of learned helplessness. When you grow up in an environment where things aren't equitable and you're at a school that has materials that are dated back five, 10 years that other schools aren't using, the computers aren't working, you're not going on field trips, and none of the students are receiving scholarships to go to school and they're dropping out, well, that's your new expectation. Well, you know, no matter how hard I try in this environment, I'm going to fail anyway. My peers have failed. My instructors are telling me I'll fail. My parents struggled and society's telling me I'm going to fail. So why do I even try? And then the cycle continues and continues and continues and continues. And while we do see many very successful people from different minority populations, you know, we could talk about our Oprah Winfrey's, Barack Obama's, Kamala Harris, if you will, you know, those are the exceptions. You know, what we do see is that more often than not across the board, these individuals are continually struggling to be able to have their voice heard. They're underrepresented. And during this time in a quarantine lockdown with COVID-19, when tensions are high, people aren't getting out. And then we have continued police brutality where it's just being displayed on TV and it seems like nothing is being done about it. It's a time to act. And that's why events like George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and so on, we can go on and on, you know, are ever so relevant. The time is now to act on this. And if we don't, I do fear that things will get worse. But it is important that, you know, we come to some common understanding of what's going on. And I think that's the big question here is how do we get to a point where everybody's voice can feel heard and we do feel equity throughout? That's the million dollar question, the trillion dollar one, if you will. Dr. Matt, tell the audience a little bit about your TV show. A little bit about my TV show. So uh, currently I have a TV show in Bolingbrook, Illinois. It's on Bolingbrook Community Television. The name of it is Mental Health Matters with uh, Dr. Matt. A lot similar to what we're doing here on this podcast, George. Um, I 
oftentimes have a guest come on the show and we talk about different topics in mental health. Uh, so it's not like your Dr. Phil where folks come on, I'm doing a clinical session right then and there. Uh, what it is, is just looking for different tips, uh, different problems that we have right now. You know, we recently had an episode on Black Lives Matter, what the movement means and why it's important, how you can get involved. We talked about caring for a loved one with mental illness during COVID-19, being in strict quarantine. How do you maintain your cool and balance while helping another? We talk about substance use, domestic violence. We've done different fitness and wellness tips, uh, job stress, and so on. So just different relevant topics. And I always encourage people who are interested to reach on out if you want to be a guest on the show, have any questions, you have any new topics you would like. You know, I definitely entertain those and do know that the purpose of the show is to inform the community. And in doing this, I do try to take a very uh, humanistic type stance. And when I say humanistic, what I'm saying is that it's not something that's, uh, you know, politically oriented, not something that's driven by, you know, my personal beliefs and values or anything like that, but something to inform the public of what's going on and help be able to destigmatize mental health while providing some resources and suggestions for you to get to a better place as well. Doc, Dr. Matt, what are two books you would recommend to the audience? Two books I recommend to the audience that I've recently read, well, to be completely honest with you, I listened to them on audiobook on Audible. Uh, the first one was recommended to me by one of my former students, which is an excellent read and is actually uh, part of Oprah's book club. It's Cased, uh, The Origins of Our Discontent, and that's by Isabel Wilkerson. And that one discuss, uh, discusses the history of uh, classism, you know, how we've really segregated uh, different classes of individuals based on affluency and lack thereof, and really what led up to what we're seeing today with systemic uh, institutionalized racism. And another one that I think is really useful that actually helped me a lot, even as someone who speaks on the topics, teaches diversity courses, and so on, is White Fragility, White so hard for white people to talk about racism uh, by Robin D'Angelo. Uh, what I love about this book is that it's very tactful. However, it is very raw. It's no holds barred. And it will have different things that really resonate with you. And even being an individual who believes that he's made great strides in terms of his personal introspection and understanding of others, you know, there were certain things where, you know, I learned a lot about myself. And the important thing to remember here when it comes to racism is that racism itself isn't necessarily something that has to be ill will or poorly intended. It can be something that stems from ignorance, you know, your lack of awareness, um, you know, something that has to do with like generational language, things like that you use. However, the important thing is to be aware of it and with that awareness to do something with it and try to, you know, better understand other people around you. That piece can go very far. And I think those two books really shed some light on very difficult topics. Again, they're tough reads, but I think they're very worthwhile and something that can really help serve as a transformative experience in your life. Dr. Matt, where can the people find you on the internet? Find me on the internet. Uh, you can do a simple uh, Google search. You can type me in Dr. Matt Gloviak, uh, Dr. Gloviak. Matthew is my formal name. Um, but my little comprehensive website uh, where you can find my most recently published articles, as well as most of the episodes of my show, which were linked into YouTube, is available at www.mentalhealthmattersshow.com. So www.mentalhealthmattersshow.com. And I also have a Facebook page and other social media link to that as well. Dr. Matt Gloviak, thanks for coming on the podcast. 
Absolutely. And thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it greatly. Have a good one. You Bye. too. Help George stay on the Chicago Heights City Council. Go and donate today at tinyurl.com slash aldermangeorge2023. Begin to transform your life and work towards inner peace with expert psychotherapy. At True Heights Treatment, our experienced therapists provide personalized, compassionate care to help you overcome life's challenges and reach your goals. Whether you're struggling with depression, anxiety, relationship issues, or other mental health concerns, our team is here to support you. With a warm and welcoming in-person and virtual office atmosphere and a commitment to person-centered and evidence-based treatments, we are dedicated to helping you address your life's challenges. Contact us now to schedule your first session at 708-248-7039 or online at trueheightstx.com. Book your appointment today and start your journey towards a happier, healthier life. Need more George? Like his pages on Facebook. Friends of George Brassy PAC, Fifth Ward Business Alliance, Chicago Heights Bicycle and Pedestrian Resource Center, and the George Brassy Podcast. <laughs>